Okay, so uh, before I start, I want to say one thing. This is, uh, uh, s- since you guys have known me, this might be the most controversial stuff I'm going to end up saying in here. Uh, I'm going to do it as graciously as possible. But I also realize that some of the stuff I'm saying is going to raise questions. And unfortunately, today, I have to bolt right after the service to go back to Good Shepherd and preach there. So, um, um, if you need to talk to me, and I would love to talk to you about this stuff. You have a couple of options. One is to like, just if, you, if it can wait till next week, just show up here and at the beginning of adult Bible study after, after uh, the sermon, we can talk about it. Or my email address and my phone number are on the back of the bulletin and you can just call me, all right? So I apologize for, this, for preaching a sermon like this and then running. It's, uh, uh, I'm not, it's not because I'm scared of you, although I am a little bit scared of you, but it's because I have to leave. I have to leave. Okay. So last week we talked about uh, what sex is in the Bible, uh, the way God created sex and what he created it for, and what it's supposed to image. It's supposed to image, and this is strange for some of you, for whom like sex is like a private thing that really has nothing to do with any other part, especially religion, right? God created sex to mirror the inner life, the eternal inner life, the love, the commitment, that the, fel- the fellowship that the Trinity has always had with each other. Sex is the closest that you will ever get to experiencing what it is like for multiple persons to be one. The three persons of the Trinity are one God. You and your spouse become one person. This is what we we talked a lot about Genesis 2 last week. A man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. That's sex language. It's marriage language. And because of that, God designed, remember 1 Corinthians 7, we'll read that again today. Anything... This is, this is the way God's creation works in every category, not just sex, but in every category. If you do it differently than the way he designed it, designed it to work, that's the definition of sin. <clears throat> Doing things differently than the way God designed them to work. All right? So when we do this with sex, when we have sex outside of a man-woman committed covenant marriage, we're doing things that are not the way God designed the world to work. And we need to repent. We need to repent. All of us do, okay? That was largely positive last week. Here's what sex is. So what I want to talk about this week is sexual sin and uh, how we can grapple with it and what we can do with it. I, um, you know, if, if for those of you, especially for those of you born after the sexual revolution who grew up in it, but for those of you who, uh, I mean, it happened early enough that most of you in here came of, at least came of age during, during the age of the sex, sexual revolution. What I'm about to say is really inappropriate in your mind. The notion that somebody would tell you what to do about sex is offensive. It's your own personal private business. This is what the sexual revolution teaches us. You can do whatever you want, right? It's your own personal private business and nobody has a right to say anything about it. But uh, I'm going to, I'm going to take a whack at it. And again, if this is offensive, and I I hope that it is a little bit, it's, it's going to be offensive to me, I know that. Uh, please get a hold of me. Please talk to me about it, okay? Either next week uh, before adult Bible study or uh, give me a call or an email. Okay, if you are... So, so the position that you guys are in in the culture with sexual sin is this. Is that if you say... It is difficult for us to say that God's design for sex is the way that the world should work. Because that basically... Well, your, your choice is this. Let me put it this way. You have, you have two choices in our culture now. This is, the, this is the choices on offer. You can either be 
completely acceptant of any behavior whatsoever. You could say, it doesn't matter what you do. I don't care. If you want to, if you want to paint it with Christianity, you could even say, God doesn't care what you do. He's not going to be offended by who you have sex with. He's too big for that. You can say that sort of thing. You can completely accept anybody. Your other option is to be filled with hate. This is the choices that the culture has on offer for you. You can like be angry. You can be, uh, you know, this is uh, evil. Homosexuals are going to hell. If you don't agree with what I say about sex, then you're a wicked sinner. Those are your two choices. But you see what your two choices are. Your two choices that you have, which a lot of you, you walk throughout your daily life feeling like, I don't know what to do. Because that's my only two choices. What, what, what do I, so you're just trying to keep quiet about your whole life. You know, you try to, to lay low, which I'm not saying that's bad. Sometimes it's good to lay low. But those two choices, you see those two choices are both incredibly sinful. Both of those two choices are not what God's plan for your life is. Either to, to like be completely accepted of any behavior that God says is wrong, or to be filled with hate towards people. So what we want to do is look at how the Bible handles sexual sin. How should we repent of it? How should we think about other people's sexual sin? That's what we're going to do today. So, two principles here. The first is this. God, this, is a, this is a little bit of a law principle. God has a right to tell us how to use our sexuality. God has a right. Now, if that's the point at which you're offended, is that nobody, and this is the sexual revolution, this is the sexual revolution's principle. Nobody has a right to tell you how to use your body. Okay, maybe I don't. But if God created your body, he has a right to say, this is how it should work. All right, 1 Corinthians 7. Here's the positive aspect. I read this last week. Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife. In each woman with their own husband. So sex is for marriage. Sex is for husbands and wives. The husband, should, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. You guys should be having sex with each other, those of you who are married. This is really offensive, what, what Paul's about to say next. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. Wives, you do not own your body. It is not your property. It is the property of your husband. It belongs to him. Your body's job is to please your husband, to give your husband comfort, to give your husband security. Likewise, verse uh, 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 second half of verse 5, in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Husbands, your body does not belong to you. You do not get to do with it whatever you want. The job of your body is to serve your wife. Here Paul's talking about sex, but you can expand it to, to marriage in general. You do not belong to yourself. When you get married, you lose your individual sovereignty and you become a part of something that's bigger. The two become one flesh. That, this is why divorce is, is incredibly rampant. This is why a lot of us, all of us, I'll say that, all of us who are postmodern struggle in our marriages because we cannot let go of that cultural concept that my body is my own and that my wife's body is designed to give me pleasure, whether that's making me food or telling me funny stories or having sex with me or ironing my clothes. Her job is to give me pleasure. It's a postmodern sexual revolution value. It is not the value of the Bible. Where it is my, my body's job to give her pleasure, to do things for her, to give her comfort, to give her security. God has a right to tell us that's the way it's going to be. And we do not have a right. We do it. We'll get to this at the end of the sermon. We do it. We tell God all the time. or We don't say it out loud to God. We just sort of passive aggressive say it in the back of our minds. No, I'm going to do what I want. This, this whole thing's about me. 
But God does have a right to say, this is how I want sex to work. So people will say to me, and this conversation a lot, I had this conversation uh, just about a week ago with somebody who said, look, talking about sexual, what what the Bible teaches about sex has, this is the phrase they use, no business being talked about from the pulpit. There's a huge part of me that wants to agree with that so much. I don't want to say things that people don't like. I want to say things that you guys do like so that you'll show up back at church and that you'll come to this church and be here. But unfortunately, I don't have that choice. I have to say what the Bible says about everything. I have to at least try to, even if it's bad on me. And this sermon is, believe me, incredibly guilt-inducing in my own heart. Maybe the most guilt-inducing sermon, maybe the most guilt-inducing sermon that I've prepared for you, for myself, is this sermon right here. So that's the positive side. You belong to your spouse. Sexually, you are owned by your spouse. Here's the negative side. Chapter before in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, Paul says, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, and he uses the term there for just sort of like general disobeying the laws of God as regards sex, or nor idolaters, nor adulterers. So people, you know, people who have affairs outside of marriage. He includes idolatry in there, by the way, because idolatry in the ancient Greco-Roman world was almost always associated with sex with, with temple prostitutes. So if you were an idolater, you were going to be having sex with temple prostitutes. So in general, um, the immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, nor men who have sex with men. He uses two words in Greek there. The first word has to do with... Um, uh, the masculine partner in a homosexual relationship. The second word has to do with the feminine partner, the receiving partner in a homosexual relationship. So neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy. This is starting to sound like Ezekiel. Nor drunkards. This is a, uh, It's always hard to preach about drunkenness to a Lutheran congregation because some of you, e- even the act of getting drunk or drinking massive amounts of alcohol, you experience in your, own psyche, in your own psyche, you experience as a, as a spiritual freedom. And you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. Drunkards or slanders or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So all these things knock you out of the kingdom of God's status if you commit these sins. It's very, 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 very quiet in here, and that makes me nervous. So Paul, Paul is very, very, this, this, is, this is what God... I'm not, by the way, this is why, this is why I had the Ezekiel text read. Because what I want to, I'm not going to say this too much in the sermon, but I'll say it a little bit later. But, um, if you think that like sexual sin is the worst sin that you can commit, it almost always gets thrown in with like greediness. You guys are Americans. Who amongst you are not greedy? Who amongst you are not greedy? Right? You can put your greed in the same, along with immorality and idolatry and adultery and homosexuality. Your, your greediness is in that same category. So before, before we get too high and mighty and pretend like other people's sins are off limits, you know, we, we don't, that's, that's, that's just too horrible to discuss. Well, well me, I, you know, I've, I've committed my life to working hard to make as much money as I can. That, that's not even a sin. Or maybe some of you are like, I should probably spend more time with the family or not be so identified with my job. No, it's, Paul, Paul puts those in the same categories. All right. So we don't like this stuff. We don't like it, especially. You know, if, 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 if the Bible teaches against racism, we're all like, okay, you can preach that. You can preach that. We're all on board with that. If the Bible preaches against sexual sin, we don't like it. But again, it's point number one here. God has a right. God has a right to say how he wants our, sexual, our sexuality to be used. Right? 
Whose sexual sin do we judge? And this is, now we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, this was the epistle reading for today. So can I, can, can I step aside for like 10 seconds and tell you what I'm doing kind of here? This is, uh, this has nothing to do with the sermon. Generally speaking, like when I write a sermon for you guys, my goal is to take one text of scripture and preach through that text expositionally and explain what that text says. I'm not doing that this morning. I'm hopping around from text to text. It's not a normal course of events, but this is more topical than it is about a specific text. That's what I'm doing. Okay, back to the sermon. Sorry about that. First uh, Corinthians 5, 9. Paul says, I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. You are not to associate with sexually immoral people. All right? But verse 10, he says, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. If you decide I'm not going to talk to anybody who's sexually immoral, you will not talk to anybody, period. Because everybody is sexually immoral. Everybody is sexually immoral. And I don't even mean the people out there. I mean every single one of you sitting here in the pew is sexually immoral. If you decide that sexual, sexual, sexual immorality is the bridge too far, you will be a very, very lonely person. Sexual, sexual immorality is everywhere in your hearts. All the time, more or less. We get to this point with uh, something that Jesus says here in just a second. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother who is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man do not even eat. Whose sexual sin are we supposed to judge? Paul's really clear about this. Our own. The sexual sin that's inside this room right now is the sexual sin that we're concerned with. The people outside these walls who commit sexual sin, and all of them do just like you do, we have nothing to do with that. God, was, God is going to judge that. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church, Paul says? Aren't we to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. All right? Look, if you could go out there and you could get every person who is cheating on their spouse to stop cheating on their spouse, if you could go out there and you could figure out some way to get everybody who is a homosexual to stop being a homosexual, they would be no better off than they are right now. Because they don't need to, they don't need to not be homosexual in the big picture. They don't need to stop having affairs in the big picture. They need Jesus. That's what they need. It is not your judge, it is not your job to judge them. It is God's job to judge them. Instead, who are you supposed to judge? You wake up in the morning and you look in the mirror. That's who you're supposed to judge. What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28? You have heard that it was said, And he quotes the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. Sexual sin is bad. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If you have ever been discontented with your spouse, if you have ever been discontented with your singleness, then you are guilty of sexual immorality. And if you're honest with me, you will tell yourself, well, I guess you could tell me if you're going to be honest with me, but be honest with yourself, that you are all sexually immoral all the time. You are all discontented with your spouse. I know that we put on this veneer, you know, romance is so important that you put on this veneer, like this is my soulmate. And the only thing I've ever wanted in life is you. And definitely in marriage, there are moments like that, but there are also moments where you're like, I wish that, I wish that that person wasn't around. I wish that I had somebody else. You are guilty of violating the sixth commandment all the time. That's the sin that has to be judged. So I want to say something here. Uh, uh, I said it to the kids at the high school and I didn't get in trouble because I don't know. You can say whatever you want to the kids at the high school and they're not going to be offended. I said it to an adult Bible study one time at Good Shepherd and I did get in trouble. 
because that was uh, that was groans, and the groans don't like some stuff you say if it's crazy. But I'm going to say this: we are all. This is not my idea. I, I read this by a great essay in Christianity Day once. Do you guys know what? The, do you guys know what the the um, the uh, the uh, original definition of queer is? So p- people who are straight are sexually attracted to people of the opposite gender. People who are gay or lesbian are sexually attracted to people of the same gender. People who are queer are not convinced that either one is what's for them. They are sexually confused. Confused not in like, I don't know what's going on, but confused in the, I don't know where I'm at. I'm discontented with my sexuality. I'm searching. I'm sexually searching. All right. Now, there's some people who are bisexual who, who identify as queer. But some people who are just not bisexual, at least yet. They're just queer and they're searching for something. This is what I think Jesus is saying in Matthew 5, 28. I think this is what um, Ezekiel kind of maybe could be hinting at. This is what Paul is uh, trying to do when he lists as many sexual sins as possible. Don't be offended by this or do be offended by this, I guess. We are all queer. All of us. This is what I'm saying. We are all queer. There is not a single one of you who, who is without sexual sin. There is not a single one of us in this room who are completely satisfied with God's plan for our lives sexually, completely satisfied with our marriage, or completely satisfied with our singleness. And all of you, all of you in your sexual sin are completely welcomed by Jesus. Completely welcomed by Jesus. Jesus does not look at you and say, Oh, you, su- you struggle with same-sex attraction? D- don't, come, don't, you don't, don't come to communion today. You, you look at pornography? Uh, that's not so bad. I mean, I don't want you to look at pornography, but you're, that's not really a bad sexual sin. Go ahead, you can come to communion. All of us are queer. All of us are sexually sinful. All of us must repent. This brings us to Grace. This is the second point. The first point is that God has a right to tell us how to use our sexuality. The second point is this. God forgives and loves to forgive, delights to forgive. His default mode is to forgive sexual sin. So we must accept and love those who sin sexually. If you can accept and love yourself, if you can accept and love your friends in this room who sin sexually, then you can accept and love anybody who sins sexually. There is no barrier to friendship with those, with you and those who commit whatever kinds of sin, period. But sexual sin as well. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. I'm going to read this again. I read verses uh, 9 and 10 uh, previously. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. That is God's law, but here comes grace. Paul says the next verse. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Look, your sexuality, your sexual sin, any sin that you commit, is not your identity as a Christian. Your identity is that you are a blood-washed saint. That in Jesus Christ, God looks at you and completely accepts you no matter what. And this is the way that we should view other people. Not as somehow off limits or this sort of special evil that needs to be specially judged. But as people who need Jesus, as people who need the same forgiveness that you and I need all the time for the same sin that you and I commit all the time. 
Why is it that we ignore Romans 5.28? I'm sorry, Matthew 5.28, where Jesus says, you guys are just as bad sexual sinners as anybody who's ever committed any kind of sexual sin whatsoever. The reason why is because we don't want to feel like we're bad people. We carve out niches within the law for ourselves where we're safe. I look at porn. I masturbate. But I'm, I'm not homosexual. So that, that's the really bad sin. you know. So I'm, I'm kind of bad. I need to repent. But those people are the really bad people. That's who really needs to repent. But you see what you've done is you've created this sort of self-righteous space for yourself, which of course is damnable. But what, what else you've done is you've cut yourself off from grace. You've made little of your own sin and you've made much of this. I'm talking about myself now. I'll say I. I've made little of my own sin and I've made much of other people's sins. And what I've done is I've created a space where I don't need to repent. And so I walk around more, much more a sinful person in my self-righteousness than the person who struggles with same-sex attraction but says, you know, God, I sin, I fall, but please forgive me. I know I'm going to fall again, but please forgive me. That person will be accepted righteous on the last day, way more than I will, because I've justified myself, because at least I'm not like that other sinner. I've cut myself off from the grace of God, and God desperately wants to forgive each one of us our sins no matter what they are. So I have this question. I get this question when I talk at the high school. I've had this. I talked to maybe three or four times. I've had this question. One time I had this question. I wasn't even talking about sex. I was in. I was uh, in Mrs. KV's class talking about spiritual gifts, and right in the middle of that conversation, somebody raises their hand and says, "Would you ever let a gay person come to your church?" Would I ever? First of all, like, I don't stand at the door, like and say, "Okay, you're in. You're in. You know, I like you. You're in." I don't. I don't do that. But like, if I could like kick some of you out. If I had that authority to kick people out, would I not allow gay people in this church? Matthew 5.28 is true, and I start keeping people out because of their sexual sin. There will be nobody at this rail ever. And I will be the last person in line. Those of you who know me closely and know my story will know. I will be the last person in line. If you struggle with sexual sin, if you struggle with lust, if you're in the middle of an affair... If you struggle with same-sex attraction, if you are in any way not content with the sexual situation that God has called you to be in in your life, and you want forgiveness, then come to this rail this morning. Communion is for you. If you are gay and you want to repent, if you are straight and you want to repent, come to this rail. St. James Lutheran Church is for you. Jesus is for you. Amen.